0: you're listening to the Ottoman History Podcast. To find out more about today's topic or check out some of our other episodes, along with maps, images, documents, and other materials related to the history of the Ottoman Empire and the modern Middle East, visit us on the web at ottomanhistorypodcast.com.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of Ottoman History Podcast i'm chris Grayton. today on the program we're taking a broad approach to the history of the modern middle east Uh, a lot of our episodes are kind of more focusing on smaller topics articles or monographs by academic historians in contrast today's episode is an interview with an author who of course has published a lot of research and has recently published a uh, survey of the history of the modern middle east The book is entitled A History of the Modern Middle East, Rulers, Rebels, and Rogues. That's out this spring, 2016, from Stanford University Press. And the author is Betty Anderson. Betty, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Betty Anderson is Associate Professor of History at Boston University. She's author of a number of works, including Nationalist Voices in Jordan, The Street and the State, that's 2005, and The American University of Beirut, Arab Nationalism, and Liberal Education. So, Betty, your survey, Rulers, Rebels, and Rogues, takes a broad look at the making of the modern Middle East, beginning with the early modern Ottoman and Safavid states, and coming all the way up to the 21st century. So, it's really an expansive periodization, and it, I think, highlights the deep historical origins of many aspects that have defined life and politics in the past century, the modern Middle East as more conventionally understood. So, I want to start our conversation sort of where you start off, right in the introduction to the textbook. Uh, you kind of situate the long history of the modern Middle East in this past uh, roughly a decade of upheaval and protests uh, and revolutions, part of what we would call the Arab Spring, as well as protests in Turkey and other parts of the Middle East. Rulers, rebels, and rogues was clearly inspired by the recent and rapid changes going on in the region, uh, and in this way provides a much-needed update to prior textbook narratives. A lot of people are familiar with the William Cleveland Textbook. I'll start by asking you, what is for you, what is the recurring theme or refrain or spirit that drives the narrative of your new overview of the history of the modern Middle East?
0: Well, as you said, I do take the, the most recent events when many people were out in the streets, many people were striking against factories, mm-hmm. many people were on Facebook or on Twitter uh, protesting against the economic situation or the political situation that they were facing and looked back to how can we broaden out the narrative that usually appears in textbooks like the William Cleveland textbook from not merely the rulers, not right. me- merely the political leadership, but also the the rebels and the rogues, the the people that don't usually show up in textbooks, but who have also been actors in history have been moving history forward have been demanding change of their governments for centuries
1: right so providing sort of a grounding in the political events of the region but always with the the implicit view towards uh the reaction uh, of people on the streets say to state uh, or non-state uh, developments uh, and sort of thinking about the history of the region not just as a set of empires and, and nation states but rather peoples, communities, movements, political parties, and whatnot.
0: And I would say also it's looking at issues like legitimacy and authority and religion and gender and seeing how those are actors when when mm-hmm. a government was legitimate, when a government needed a certain type of authority in order to gain that legitimacy.
1: And certainly this was something that was missing in earlier iterations of modern Middle East textbooks, because a lot of this is coming out of research that's happened in the past decades. Even as, as these have been incorporated into some textbooks, it's always like, and gender too, and environment mm. too. And all these different themes also are part of this story. But I guess what you're trying to do is really forefront those things and show how they're not just an aspect of processes, but rather, for example, with the question of gender, how gender shapes the outcome of political events and not just how Let's say politics it influences understandings exactly. of gender. And
0: not to think of these issues as sitting in a blue box on the side of the page. Exactly. They can be part of the main narrative. And this is the frustration I had in class when I would use my colleagues' wonderful monographs as additions to the textbooks mm-hmm. that existed, and students had a great deal of trouble finding a, way, a gateway into that narrative. It seemed so authoritative. It seemed so closed. It mm-hmm. was hard to find a gateway in. So my hope is that with this text, by bringing up so many other issues, that there are gateways for more information, because obviously I couldn't bring up everything. Yeah. But they're gateways for bringing up information that will show that the the main narrative is complex. It's mm-hmm. not just about the rulers. It's not just about high politics.
1: And later on in our conversation, we'll sort of peer into some of those gateways that you open up at various different parts of the text. But first, let's introduce sort of the, fr- the broad framing of the text. Uh, tell us about the book, who are your rulers? Who are your rebels? Who are your rogues? What are these categories?
0: So the rulers, I, I very purposely started with the, the Ottoman and Safavid empires because their actions do carry on. Obviously, the Ottoman Empire exists Absolutely. all the way until after World War I. The Safavid Empire falls earlier than that, but the Qajars pick up many of the aspects of uh, the rulership and legitimacy that the Safavids had established earlier, and wanted to look at not just the sultans and the shahs at that time, but to see how they wrote their own narratives of legitimacy of their ancestors, how they helped create new kinds of players like with the Shi hierarchy and the Safavid empire, to not just have the sultans and the shahs, but to go back to that time and set the stage for the later period when we do have a lot of different political actors to get an idea of how the Ottoman sultans gained power and were able to hold it Mm -hmm. for so many centuries, to then look at what I call the rogues. Mm -hmm. And those are the, the people throughout history who didn't out and out challenge the authority or the legitimacy of a particular government or leader, but rebelled to reform it, to change it, to get a job in it. Mm -hmm. So these are people who are um, students, professionals, uh, slaves, bureaucrats in the various governments, Bandits who wanted jobs in the government. And these are people who did alter some aspects of governance, even as they didn't overthrow it completely.
1: So these are marginalized people, what someone calls subaltern actors, but acting in a way that shows their own agency and their own uh, ability to transform uh, state and society within Uh, particular context
0: and absolutely they're marginalized in some ways because they don't have political power they're they're junior bureaucrats so they're they're not exactly marginalized in one way but they're they're struggling to say uh, and say in the interwar period they're struggling to say we're the ones who have the new education why do we have these old arab notables for example ruling over us we should bring our expertise into government Moving on to rebels who have, well, they're Wahhabis under the Ottoman Empire, or we're looking at the Palestinians who have always rebelled against the the leadership, whether the British or the Israeli leadership, or later on Islamists, or Mm -hmm. the students... Forming political parties and demonstrating in the 1930s whose ideas become the cornerstone of governments of, say, Gamal Abdel Nasser in the 1950s, kind of moving from rogues to rebels as they do want to overthrow the governing system completely in the 40s, 50s and 60s.
1: And one of the nice things about these, the the two latter ca- categories of the rogues and the rebels I mean, it's it's intuitive for everyone to put the Ottomans and the Safavids and the British and the French all into the same basket of sort of imperial rulers, right? That's That makes perfect sense. But in constructing these uh, categories of the rebels or the rogues, you're actually bringing together a lot of groups that always, aren't always put in the same sentence, always aren't always cast in the same role in the broad historical narrative.
0: And I wanted to be able to have a book that wasn't just telling what happened obviously, but a, a org an organizing structure that would allow me to go from the founding of the Ottoman and Safavid empires to the present day. Yeah. And that becomes difficult when you're only looking at political structures, because right. those do change a lot. pretty dramatically. But if you're looking at the relationship between rulers and the people they are ruling, that is a way, you know, regardless of what yeah. the governing system is, that, that carried the narrative through up until the present day.
1: Right. You can kind of see the relationship between the minister of education in Mandate Iraq in, in Lebanon or the 18th century Ottoman bureaucrat if we focus on this uh, relationship and the dialogue between uh, the state and both its uh, employees, its agents, uh, and its subjects.
0: And the people who are pushing yep. against those, whether exactly. to overthrow it or to push for jobs or for change in some fashion.
1: Welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Creighton here with Betty Anderson talking about her new textbook, A History of the Modern Middle East. I want to remind our listeners that they can check out our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, where they'll find a link to the textbook on the Stanford University Press website so that they can find out more and potentially even obtain a copy of this great new work. So, Betty, as we've been saying, your new textbook does a lot to restore the role of quotidian and non-state actors uh, within the dominant narrative making of the modern middle east which has had many iterations over the past decades and so to get into some of the the details of what's inside uh, your narrative and what people can look forward to reading about in this textbook i wanted to hone in on the 19th century for a bit because a lot of our listeners are interested in the 19th century and the ottoman empire in the middle east uh, you have a chapter on reform and rebellion of course broadly mapped onto the Tanzimat period, a familiar part of that modern Middle East narrative. But I like that you follow it with a chapter, also on the 19th century, but entitled Workers and Nationalists. So tell us about that chapter and tell us about the workers who take on the kind of a central role in this particular section of the book.
0: Uh, what I wanted to do was to look beyond just the reforms. Obviously, there's an entire chapter on the reforms that both the Ottoman and the Qajars Institute, as well as Muhammad Ali in Egypt, Yes. But as I always say to my own students in class, these institutions were not value-neutral, that people went into them. They got conscripted into the military. They, They worked as coal heavers at the Suez Canal. The largest employer in the late 19th century in Egypt was Egyptian State Railways, People were in new kinds of schools. They were dressing in entirely different ways, walking down the street, presenting themselves as someone who had just gone through an Ottoman school or a missionary school. And so what I wanted to get into in a couple of chapters was that the people brought into those institutions – made those institutions their own and demanded more of them, demanded more jobs. They demanded rights as workers. They demanded that schools expand so that more people can go to them. They Mm -hmm. demanded that there would be better, better rights as peasants on the land. And so I really wanted to spend, and I actually spend close to two chapters, looking at how people... Uh, used the new institutions, Mm -hmm. that they were certainly not used just the way the Ottomans or Muhammad Ali designed them to be.
1: And so in in this context, there are maybe a couple ways of of doing that. Uh, One, of course, is the longstanding tradition of petitions, sort of in the early modern empire, citizens petitioning somehow. And this This really grows a lot in the 19th century, uh, the state. Uh, Another, of course, is to rebel or strike, if if we're talking about workers in uh, in various ways. Um, Could you give some examples of some of the cases that you highlight in the book?
0: Yeah, so what I look at for the 19th century is the worker, you know, as I just said, the coal heavers in the Suez Canal or the cabbie drivers in Egypt the textile weavers in Damascus that many of my colleagues mm-hmm. have written about because I'm using the monographs that others have written about and the research that they've con- conducted is to see that you can't go into these institutions and be the ex- exact same person, have the exact same yeah. identity that people, as as my colleagues have written about, people were now starting to break away from the apprentice system in textile weaving yeah. and not seeing this personal relationship between the master and they as the journeyman weavers, that they were starting to see themselves horizontally as a set of workers who have complaints, Mm -hmm. or looking at other work that was done of uh, women silk workers in Lebanon who... First few decades were certainly doing this to help their families and bringing in cash for their families in an exploding economic realm. But within a few decades, they started to go on strike themselves to deserve better pay and vacation time or using their money to establish their own trousseau. And establishing a different kind of maybe lower middle class, middle class lifestyle for themselves from this experience that they've just had. So this is what I find is fascinating, is the reforms that we talk about, like the Tanzimat, don't tell anywhere near enough of the story and the actions that are being taken and the identities that people are reforming within them.
1: Mm -hmm. you gave a great example there with Mount Lebanon of the limitations of the westernization and Tanzimat narrative, because you had a number of elements that just don't make it into that narrative. You have, first of all, capitalism, which is often peripheral to a lot of what's going on in the Ottoman state during the 19th century. You have women as workers striking and and sort of that, that agency is completely lost, of course, in a Tanzimat-centered narrative. Uh, and of course, Mount Lebanon is a region that is uh, predominantly Christian. And so here you are also highlighting that, you know, look, yes, the Ottoman Empire was an Islamic polity, but not everyone in the empire was Muslims. And it's not as if Christians had no influence over the shaping of the outcome of the state during the 19th century. It's really great to see the research, I guess, of the case of Mount Lebanon, the work of Akram Khater, for example, making its way into this dominant narrative of the history of the modern Middle East in a way that it really wasn't there a few decades ago.
0: And that's why I say in the introduction that I I really wanted to bring in these monographs that I had used in class and had been frustrated that I couldn't find the students couldn't find gateways into that closed narrative of politics and to really think about what happens when you are in these institutions. It comes from my own work with the American University of Beirut yeah. where students Uh, Very quickly, 1882, the Darwin protests. 1899, the first student magazine is published. And over the next 60 years or so, there's something like 65 magazines where students articulated who they wanted to become as a result of their education. They also protested against the administration when they felt the administration wasn't fulfilling Mm -hmm. Yeah. American liberal education. So I also took my own research and my own thinking of this relationship between rulers and ruled as I was putting together the thesis
1: of the book. And we will try to maybe mine the, the bibliography or use some of our own resources here to also provide a reading list on our page on the on the history of the modern Middle East. I think it's a great uh, oper- a great venue. This podcast is a great venue to sort of bring that um, to our audience and, and get those, you know, bibliographies out there. So another thing I want to ask you about is uh, the First World War. For a long time, uh, the First World War has been seen as uh, formative and transformative in the history of the modern Middle East, but how we think about it is constantly changing. Uh, in the past years, especially, the First World War has received a lot of scholarly attention, especially going beyond just uh, the politics and, and, and battles, but really looking at life uh, and, and movements uh, in the Ottoman Empire and Iran and Egypt during the years of the First World War. Uh, I myself am trying to devise a class on the First World War and how it shaped the Middle East. So I'm wondering if you could tell us just a little bit about how, in your book, uh, the First World War period plays a role in sort of making the, the post-war uh, Middle East that we know today.
0: I, I actually gave a talk at Boston University sometime in the spring on the 100th anniversary of the sykes Bacot Agreement, right. and what is that legacy? And I said at the time, in large measure because of what I've just written, that we focus so much on the Sykes-Picot Agreement, mm-hmm. the Balfour Declaration, the documents that divided up the the Middle East and created yeah. the states that we know today. That again, similar to what I just said for the 19th century. We forget what people then did with these institutions, Absolutely. did with these boundaries. And so that's, as I move into the interwar period, what I was really fascinated with in the more immediate term was what happened in the two and three years right after World War One, And then again, what happened right after World War Two. these moments when there's Something of a political vacuum, the Ottoman Empire after World War One does still exist, but it doesn't have much in the way of institutional structures, local institutions t- filled in the gap. Yeah. But to see who protested, you know, we have rebellions in Iraq and Palestine Absolutely. and Egypt right at the end of the war that the British and the French put down and, and Syria, uh, Who who protested? And often what was fascinating to me was the groups that often protested, in a case like Iraq, were those who had lost out in the late Ottoman Empire. The late Ottoman Empire empowered many people, empowered Arab notables, large landowners, big merchants, who had now the right to own property. They are now large landed estates that they control that they now have political power that their patron-client networks can wield at the local level. These are not the people that protested in 1918, 1919, 1920 in places like Iraq. It's the Shi clerics who had been more marginalized by the late Ottoman Empire. It was uh, landowners who feared that they would lose their land. It was Ottoman bureaucrat, local Ottoman bureaucrats who felt that they were not going to get jobs in the new British administration mm. and to carry the Ottoman Empire into the post-World War I period of time. Yeah. Now, Egypt is Egypt is different. It's a different configuration of people that are protesting in the 1919 Revolution. But in the other Arab areas, it's really interesting to see that it's largely the people who had been left out who are starting to... Uh, protest in order to regain lost power or to take advantage of this power vacuum to gain more, at least locally.
1: And I guess this uh, emergent view, you know, sort of expanding the World War I period to include the 1920s, and I think it's valid in the Middle East, and also the view that, you know, the the British and French mandates in the Middle East, rather than necessarily being this total sea change, sort of an epilogue to the Ottoman Empire, kind of, in some ways, a lot of continuing a lot of the themes that uh, emerged in the late Ottoman period. I think this is, is, this is a valuable um, contribution to sort of shifting the narrative of these textbooks to reflect what's going on in the scholarship again.
0: Absolutely. Well, thank you. And it it is to look at the carry over from the late Ottoman Empire to the 1920s where they we then get to the 1930s where we're starting to get a new configuration of people that are the rulers, rebels and rogues yeah. that they're just as the um, ni- right after World War I is a conflict between those who had been Produced empowered or marginalized by the late Ottoman Empire the 1930s is very much about people who had been empowered or marginalized by the mandates themselves, by the new states themselves.
1: And we'll talk about that in just a bit, but first we'll take another break for some music and come back with our interview with Betty Anderson about her new book, A History of the Modern Middle East, Rulers, Rebels, and Routes. Stay tuned.
0: And I'm
1: Welcome back, Chris Grayton. Here with Betty Anderson. We've just been talking about how your new textbook is uh, sort of incorporating the work, uh, the latest scholarly trends uh, of historians of the modern Middle East over the past decades. Uh, and I want to bring that um, conversation to really a period that I think is part of your specific scholarly expertise, which is of course the interwar period between the First World War and the Second World War. Uh, you've got a chapter in there on your rebels and rogues. So let's hear about it. Tell us about the rebels and rogues of the interwar period.
0: Okay, so to do the transition from the late Ottoman and then this post World War One period, the people that are protesting the people who are winning the people who are getting the jobs in the new states Mm -hmm. uh, are the products of the Ottoman Empire. But then during the course of the 1920s, there is an element of industrialization, there is urbanization, there's also an expansion of the school systems, there is the creation of new political parties, whether they are really just expressions of elite politics, say like the National Bloc, or the shifting ideologies of Mm -hmm. the Waft Party in Egypt, that. By the 1930s and then with the Great Depression of the 1930s, with in some ways the pulling back of the British and the French because they the economic yeah. problems at home, particularly with the French more so than the British, we see a, a multivaried negotiation and dialogue taking place in one country after another of... How, who has the right to rule? Yes, the British yeah. and the French should go away. That's that's a common theme. Right. But should these old notables have the right to rule as the presidents and the ministers in these governments? Are they really qualified anymore? Should we be thinking of the fact that we as this young generation of students, of uh, professionals, are much better educated? So. Uh, Again, my colleagues have done this work where the National Bloc was predominantly landed uh, notables, whereas the League of National Action, founded in the middle of the 1930s, was largely professionals, particularly of lawyers. So you're looking at a new generation coming to the fore, and they're joining the WAFT party. They're joining the National Bloc. They're also forming the League of National Action, some of their own political parties. They're also forming militias in the streets we also have the muslim brotherhood by this point so militias are actually part of the street demonstrations throughout yeah. the 1930s and there are more factories there are a lot of people who are left out of jobs as the industries shut down with mm-hmm. the beginnings of the um, great depression and so workers are out in the streets they're not necessarily organizing together but they're putting pressure on their local governments as well as the british and the french ruling over those local governments and they're articulating ideas about national local nationalism arab nationalism land reform socioeconomic change they don't have any power to make those changes but they are putting these ideas into a vibrant discussion in their newspapers, in their magazines, these in the political salons, this is a vibrant time where people are asking a lot of questions, even if they don't necessarily have the power to institute the changes at that time.
1: Right. And we see how this is a more nuanced view. Uh, we're talking about the period sort of lead up to decolonization, right? And of course, the narrative of decolonization, even when it emphasizes the anti-imperial or anti-colonial movements, is kind of a Eurocentric narrative to the extent that the leaving of the British and the French is considered the only and main event in that history. As you say, this period brings all these uh, new dynamics to the fore. You see this uh, very uh, pluralistic uh, political engagement that's going on during the very late uh, mandate period. And then, of course, in the early national period uh, that goes really well beyond that sort of, uh, again, great powers uh, narrative of the modern Middle East.
0: And it helps explain the post-World War II period when independence does come, and kind of across the board in the Middle East, there's a liberalization program, whether it's Iraq or Turkey or Egypt, allowing political parties, allowing workers' unions to form, and people are taking advantage of that. Mm -hmm. And they're contesting elections, they're demonstrating in the streets, the leaders who came into independence get frightened by that, put those down. But they're helping to then catalyze the junior officers in the military who are going to lead a series of military coups and and fueling the 1950s when there was such excitement in the area that change could come. And it wasn't yeah. just getting rid of the European powers. It was uh, staving off the Cold War. Yep. And it was, again, socioeconomic reform, land reform, mm-hmm. industrialization, there was a real excitement in the 1950s, and it's it didn't come out of nowhere. It came out of these changes from the mandate period forward.
1: Interesting. Well, we want to remind our listeners that this is a book that covers 500 years from the early modern period, the Ottoman Empire, the Safavid Empires, and all the way into the 21st century. We won't talk about all of that, but As we said, there is also a lot of emphasis on the past sort of 50, 60 years of the Middle East, of course, the Cold War and the post-Cold War period, very important periods of history. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about the book and maybe touch on these later periods, but ask more personal questions about uh, your process, the challenges, the benefits of undertaking such a work. The first question I want to ask is, what are some of the great books we've been alluding to? Uh, that really helped shape your textbook works by your colleagues uh, that really changed how you were thinking about the modern Middle East and that you've brought into the narrative.
0: Um, things like you just you already mentioned Akram Kater's book uh, on the changes in Mount Lebanon in the nineteenth century, uh, Philip Hory going back to his uh, Syria under the French mandate. I hadn't done anywhere near enough research on. Egypt in the second half of the 19th century. So you're looking at people who, like Joel Bainan, who have worked on workers in that period of time. Mm-hmm. That enabled me to do that. Uh, Getz Nordbrook wrote a wonderful book a couple of years ago on how communism and fascism was received in Syria and Lebanon yeah. in the 1930s and 1940s.
1: And Peter Veen for Iraq, for example.
0: Absolutely. And that really helped frame my ideas about how how vibrant and diverse the discussion was yeah. so these are some of the books that help frame my ideas
1: right and the list goes on and on and, it and goes on. we've and got on. more on our website all these little narratives that actually when you put them together you see just how much is going on
0: uh Sherry vatter on the journeyman workers in damascus yeah i've been using her little short article on that for 10 years in my classes now I got to find a way to put it into the narrative
1: and I guess that leads into my second question which is how writing this work uh I don't you can tell us how long it took you to write this textbook <laughs> for those who ever want to undertake the same undertaking uh but you know how did writing the textbook change the way uh you teach and engage with students in the classroom how is this how how have some of the challenges uh and findings uh, influenced your pedagogy
0: Of course, when I started, I thought I was just going to take my lectures from class and put them into a textbook. And, of course, the opposite has happened. That I wrote a textbook that now is changing my lectures in the classroom. Uh, For me, it's now less about who the players were, what big events were taking place. As much as these processes, these Mm. dialogues, these negotiations, these questions about legitimacy and authority and the, the role of religion in governance and in society, I spend a lot more time now on the processes than I ever did before. Whereas before, my lectures would have been framed by big events or, you know, big people in history like Nasser or someone like that. Now it's much that I, I frame all of my lectures and my discussions in class about these processes.
1: And I guess also uh, sort of highlighting the discursive components of history uh, is something that comes in as well you know the textbook often has facts and dates that can't be questioned but none of us as historians actually write this way in our own work so finding a way to bring that into the classroom I think is also important because students need to come away with the understanding that history is you know it's not monolithic there's no one narrative all of this is in on some level uh, a discourse of different varieties.
0: Yeah, and I hope that students, they won't necessarily remember maybe World War One in the Middle East, but the, these processes of history might be something they can take into another class. Or when they read the newspaper Absolutely. or they read about the Middle East, that's what I'm hoping.
1: Right, to learn to read critically. Um, and so we do have a few minutes here. So, Betty, I want to ask you to, you know... You can take the question where you want it, but sort of reflecting on your own experience as a researcher and a writer and now writing this textbook, you take it all the way from the 16th century, way beyond your own scholarly expertise, most centrally, through uh, the period of your expertise, and then all the way into the present events that you've actually observed, uh, lived and experienced. And as a American living in the Middle East, probably a lot of the political events were the very lens through which you experienced those societies and cultures in the time of your fieldwork. So I'm wondering, what was it like to write about historical events that you've lived and witnessed?
0: I, I was able to bring more of a personal connection to that. And I talk about this a lot in my own classes of what I've seen over the 25 years that I've been going to the Middle East, starting with Jordan and then to Lebanon, but of course, traveling to the surrounding countries frequently. I, I go to the Middle East at least twice a year. This year it's been four times this year, but usually it's twice a year. Uh, The 150th anniversary of the American University of Beirut has brought me back to Beirut more times this year. And to not necessarily frame it as, okay, here's the Arab Spring, these are the events of the Arab Spring, but the way my own friends talk about the changing political structure, the the new uses of social media. I'm currently starting a project with Fida Daly, who's at Georgetown, on the new social places in Amman. And, you know, the new public spaces that are for socializing in Amman, new and newly remade. And that comes from my own observations, my own trips there and going to the cafes or the restaurants and seeing who's around me and observation. So I think probably the very end of the book has more of that because... I can't divorce my own personal relationship with the Middle East from the events that have been taking place.
1: And it's really a much smarter way of writing the textbook. You know, we kind of started our conversation by looking backwards at the history of the Middle East through that past decade uh, that we've all just experienced um, and highlighting how, you know, new times require us to have new uh, textbooks and new narratives because our lens is always shifting depending on what's going on. And uh, really... um, Making sure to make clear to, to students and to the audiences that, yes, there there is an, an element of uh, the present that comes into our reading of the past, even when we go all the way back to the early modern Ottomans, uh, is something that's very definitely, definitely very important. And I want to thank you for, you know, of course, bringing that to the table in your textbook and, and talking uh, to us today about your uh, new work and your experience.
0: Oh, thank you very much. I've enjoyed this very much.
1: It's been our pleasure. Now, I want to remind our listeners that they can check out our website, Podcast.com, for a link to the listing of A History of the Modern Middle East, Rulers, Rebels, and Rogues on Stanford University Press's website. That's also a space to leave comments and questions uh, and get in touch with our other listeners on Facebook. Now over 25,000 following and commenting on our Facebook page. Please join us there to discuss and keep track of the latest content. Thanks for listening. That's all for this episode. Join us next time. And until then, take care.